0: Let's pray together. Father, as we come now to open your word, it is with joy and expectation. With your disciples, we also say, Lord, you have the words of life. Where else can we go? And we pray that you would draw us into your presence and that the dear spirit that has been sent into the world at Christ's departure, whose task it is to guide us and lead us into the knowledge of your truth would once again illuminate our minds that we may understand this word and move our wills to obedience that we may follow all that you have called us to do and that even according to this particular scripture he would would bear his mighty uh, witness in our souls as to whether we are or are not true children of God. And we ask these things, that your great name would be honored and glorified, that Christ would be lifted high so that all people would be drawn to him, and that for this assembly that we would be transformed from what we are into what we ought to be. So bring comfort as it is needed, bring encouragement and hope where they are needed, bring life, repentance Faith, all things, Lord, all things that we stand in need of in this hour, we look to you and call upon your mighty name through Jesus Christ to hear and to answer. So let your blessing rest upon us for Christ's sake. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Many years ago, my wife and I were invited to attend the adoption ceremony of dear friends who had been in the process to adopt a child for quite a long time. And as is often the case, there was a significant backstory, years of waiting, even asking God to give them uh, a child through biological means, but God chose not to. There was a, uh, a failed adoption that was heartbreaking. One of those stories I'm sure that many of you have heard of before, and you sorrow and share in the grief of your friends, but then finally the day came where the adoption of their first child, one of two that they've actually adopted, uh, came uh, to be finalized. And I remember both the, the joy that so many of us shared with them, but that was, I think, the first time I had really understood the legal process behind an adoption. Some of you have experienced this firsthand and would know this even better than I do. I looked it up this week to refresh my memory, but at, at that moment when an adoption is finalized, the judge always issues what is called the decree of adoption. And it might vary a little bit from state to state, but it, it says something like this, and this is a direct quotation from one of the legal documents that I found available. A judge will say at that moment of finalization, the parental rights of John and Jane Smith as parents, and we'll just say Mary Smith as child, are hereby established from this day forward. Further, said child is legally adopted by the petitioners, said adoptive parents having all the rights and responsibilities concerning the child in interest as if they were the child's biological parents. And finally, said parents and child shall have the right of inheritance from each other as if the child was the biological issue of the said adoptive parents. Now there's a lot of legalese in there. But you feel the weight of that moment, and you feel the significance of a judge, an authorized legal authority declaring that this child, who really has no shared DNA, no, no biological connection to this set of parents, is declared to be their child once and for all. All the rights, all the privileges, and to And to affirm this, the court actually issues a new birth certificate. That was one of those things that I remember saying, are you serious? That is the coolest thing. A birth certificate for the child, naming the adoptive parents as the natural parents. And if you've ever had the privilege of being in a courtroom with friends or family members when a judge reads a statement like that and makes the declarations and it's all finalized, I mean, it it is a powerful moment. I mean, it's goosebumps or chicken skin, whatever you refer to that you know, physical response when you get a shiver that, that really is coming out of your soul but it, makes, it way, makes its way to your forearms or the back of your neck or whatever it is. It's a powerful moment. Our friends actually went through this process twice and even today it's great joy to see them now with teenage children. You know, this is precisely where Paul, in the letter to the Romans, now wants to carry the train of thought. We've made our way to Romans 8, and I would ask you to take a Bible and turn there with me, please. We're going to look at a portion of Romans 8. What Paul is doing here in Romans 8 is continuing a, a powerful line of thinking that actually began multiple chapters ago, but we'll just stick with chapter 8 for a second, where he has said the Spirit of God, who he calls the Spirit of Life, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. What an awesome thing. We were just singing about that. Uh, if, If this gospel is new to some of you and you're like, man, you guys sing about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ a lot. Yes, we do, because that's where our hope really is found. And so that's Romans 8, 1 and those early verses. And then he comes in verse 9 and says, the Spirit of God not only sets you free, but he indwells you takes up residence within your soul. And and that is a powerful remedy to the great problem Paul had mentioned back in Romans 7, where he says, I'm a wretched man because the things I want to do, I don't do, and what I don't want to do, I do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And he's also talked about indwelling sin. I mean, it's the plague and cancer of us all. And so while those who repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus are delivered from that ultimate soul-destroying power of sin, we still deal with its presence every day, every moment, and you might despair and say, what will I do about this indwelling sin? I couldn't even get ready for church this morning without sinful thoughts or sinful motives or, or sinful words emerging. Well, here is a powerful remedy, and it's not just that God implant some other force in you, because sin is a a powerful force, if you will. It's not even the the indwelling uh, force of righteousness or holiness or noble desires. No, it's the third person of the Trinity, God himself, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell. Now, that's where we left it off last week, and now we come, and I want to go back to verse 12. I know we worked all the way through verse 13, kind of. We ran out of time, but um, I want to go back to verse 12 and read through verse 17. So you follow along these six verses here where we resume uh, this, this little treatise on the spirit of God and how his work and presence in us will create uh, additional hope for us. Romans 8, verse 12, follow along as I read. So then, brothers, and that so then is tied to what he just said, the spirit gives life. So so then, brothers, because the spirit gives life, I'll insert that little thought. We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself Bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Oh, I wish we could read on. I, I'm just telling you, and some of you know this, what's, what's lying ahead. This is just such good stuff. Two primary thoughts for you to consider this morning with regard to the presence of the Spirit in the life of the believer. The first is this, the Spirit of God actually leads us into righteousness. Now, look at the, the terminology here. Uh, we, we were looking last week at the fact that he really has broken the power of sin, and now he uses a term here uh, in, in verse 12 that we need to explore a little more closely. He says, so then brothers, we are debtors, not this way, but then he's going to open the door how uh, we are debtors. And, and the big point is he's leading us to take particular action in life. To be a debtor means to be uh, an individual who's under some kind of obligation. You could be a debtor financially, so you're under financial obligation to pay off that debt. He's not talking about a financial debt here. He's actually talking about a moral obligation And it's because the Spirit of God has given you life. It's because he has taken you out of the realm of the sinful and dead and placed you into the realm of those who've been made righteous, declared righteous uh, for Christ's sake and, and brought into the realm of the living. So because of the work of the Spirit, we are debtors. Not, he says, to the flesh to live according to the flesh. And he reminds us, we've looked at this before in the recent chapters. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. Sin always leads us into pain and destruction. And if you choose to follow the course of the world, if you choose to follow even the, the lusts of your flesh, the desires uh, uh, of, your, of your natural uh, state, you will experience death. So he's saying you're not under obligation any longer to that old way, the, the, the old you, before Christ came and the Spirit came and then he goes on to say, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Now, what is he talking about there? Well, he's not saying that if you, if you do certain things, and you will receive eternal life. No, he's talking about that, that was secured by Christ on the cross. That is a gift of God. But now he is calling us to live in a particular way. Let, let's unpack this in reverse order. What are the deeds of the body? What does that phrase mean as Paul uses it? Well, if you're using the New International Version, you actually see the word misdeeds of the body. Listen to what one author writes in in helping us to define the misdeeds or the deeds of the body. John Stott writes in his commentary, every use of our body, our eyes, ears, mouth, hands, or feet, which serves ourselves instead of God and other people. That's a pretty simple and direct explanation, the misdeeds of the body. These are things that are, that, that are out of line with God's standards of righteousness. And the command is simply put these to death. That is, you and I are called to subdue every evil desire and furthermore to actually destroy, to, to destroy the strength of those evil desires or sin itself. So go back and grab some of the, some of the terminology from Chapter 7, indwelling sin, we're in a war with it. The question is, so how do I put that sinful uh, component of my, my soul to death? Well, in the terminology before us, you, you actually begin to say no to it, but you also deprive it where it draws its strength. You could think in terms of how, how if you nourish your body in particular ways, you gain strength through that. And if you don't feed yourself a balanced diet, then you're going to experience some difficulty, weakness, you know, being one of the foremost things. And if you pause for a moment to consider what you're feeding your soul, the question really each of us needs to be asking is, well, am I feeding, am I actually feeding my flesh so that it grows stronger? Am I feeding indwelling sin so that it actually has power to exert over my life, or am I actually depriving it of its life-giving food and feeding the new me? Am I feeding my spirit as the spirit of God leads me? If you go all the way back to Romans 6.13, remember that Paul wrote, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for sin. And now he states simply and directly that we're also called to kill off every use of our body, of our lives, which is contrary to God's will. So there's a bit of a progression here. If you rewind you know, your, your, your life story all the way to that moment before you were converted, those days before you repented and put your faith in Jesus Christ, you were totally under the control of sin. Dominated by it, you were a slave to it, uh, you, you could not please God uh, we looked at some of that terminology with, with Paul earlier, uh, had no capacity to, but then a mighty thing happened, and God changed your heart. And then after that point of conversion, God comes and says, don't, don't give yourself over to that anymore. That's the old you. There's a new you who came out of the tomb with Jesus. You were resurrected with him, united with him. And now he, it's not only don't give yourself to that stuff, he's saying, and what the indwelling remains of that, kill it. Kill it. Can I just say very practically? That's why it's so important that we look at things and listen to things and, and take, you know, whether it be your entertainment choices, your social media feeds, even in the classroom or books that you're reading. That's why it's so important that you not be feeding the old you. It's dead in one sense, but something still remains. And some of you really struggle because you're actually not making wise choices as to what you take into your soul. Some of you feel great frustration this morning. Like, why? Why can't I just get, get victory over this particular sin issue that I'm struggling with? Well, maybe you need to look at, our, is, there a, is there a lifeline you've set up? Yeah, your entertainment choices matter to your soul. We often think of them as a diversion, and sometimes they're like, well, you know, there's only a little bit of objectionable content, or, you know, that, that's the way non-Christians really think, and I'm not buying that, oh, but you got something inside that's like, yeah, give that to me. Give that to me. And the Lord is saying, I'm calling you to kill it. I'm calling you to deprive it of its source of life. Galatians 5.24 says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. A few chapters ahead, Paul will say to us in Romans 13.14, As you put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You say, that's a tall order. I, I want to do that, but it's really hard. Oh, you know, the Lord himself knows that, and that's why the next little phrase back in Romans 8 says, by the Spirit. You're not on your own to do this. You do this through the Spirit. He really is the power in this effort Another Christian author, Doug Moo, writes, holiness of life is achieved neither by our own unaided effort, because if it's all up to you and me, you know what we call that? Moralism or legalism. He goes on to write, nor by the spirit apart from our participation, and there are those who insist that the key to holy living is just surrender. Have You heard this phrase, let go and let God. There are situations where you need to turn loose of whatever you're trying to control. But generally speaking, you partner with God. And in this case, you partner with the Holy Spirit. And when he leads you, when he brings conviction upon your heart and says, y- you really shouldn't listen to that, shouldn't watch it, shouldn't read it, shouldn't participate, then you say, okay, I won't. But, but we're not these neutral creatures you know, just waiting for the Spirit of God to pick us up and remove us from the place of temptation or, or to pull us out of a setting That is going to be counter to his will. No, we participate with him. Doug Moo goes on to write, but by our constant living out the life placed within us by the Spirit who has taken up residence within us. So aren't you glad it's not all up to you? You do have your part, but it is the Spirit himself who supplies the power. Now look at the promise behind this new obligation. If you do this, Paul says, you will live. It seems to be, as you consider the context, has more to do with just the quality of life. It's not that you're earning eternal life by your obedience. We've already seen Paul address that and say, by works of the law, nobody will be justified before God. But some of us actually are are living less of a life right now than God really intended, and that the blood of Jesus was designed uh, to purchase because we don't take commands like these very seriously. And there's a kind of death that you can experience, a kind of, of diminished life in Jesus. Then he goes on to say, look again at the text with me, for all who are led by the Spirit of God, and, and that little word for really has a sense of because, it's tied to you will live. So you will live because all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And now he's about to, to, to venture into a second really Uh, significant moment but the spirit of God here's the big point the spirit of God leads God's people into more and more righteousness one another uh, another teacher in his commentary on Romans writes it is the, the this leading of the spirit it is the constant effective and beneficent influence he's a he's a good God which the Holy Spirit exercises within the hearts and lives of God's children, enabling them more and more to crush the power of indwelling sin and to walk in the way of God's commandments freely and cheerfully. You know, I was thinking about this earlier this week, that sometimes you feel like, man, some of those old habits are so deeply ingrained in me, I'm not sure I will ever see the kind of progress I want until I'm in the presence of Jesus. But actually Romans 8 tells us something a little different, doesn't it? That God himself is not waiting until we're in the presence of Jesus to correct all of these deeply ingrained patterns and and habits of sin. But actually the spirit has come to dwell in us in part that we with him as we follow him would actually be able to kill these things. And the spirit's work is not simply corrective of the flesh, it's destructive to it. And I love that. And I say thank you Lord. So let that truth just, just, treasure it in your in your heart because here's what's going to happen I mean no sooner we leave this place and some of us will be like sinning all over the place you know you'll get in the car and you know it while we're sitting here in this air-conditioned space your car is heating up to about 179 degrees and the first thing that'll happen is you will burn your hand on the dashboard and you know that'll set you off and then your kids will pile in and they're they're a little grouchy and hungry and they're hot as well and where are we going to go to lunch and I don't know and Mom, where should we go to lunch? And she says, I don't know. You pick it and you say, hey, let's go for Mexican. And she says, no, we just ate that two nights ago. And another kid in the back is like, I hate Mexican. And you know how this conversation goes and like three minutes down the road, nobody's thinking about the glories of the indwelling spirit of God in them. And in exasperation, you say, fine, we're driving, I'm driving the car home. Everybody's on his own. Hope there's enough leftovers for you. Last one in the house may go hungry, but aren't you glad to know that the spirit who does dwell in God's people is intent on, on changing all of that, and that's why some of us who have conversations like that are con- so convicted in our spirits, because the spirit of God is saying, no. That's the old you. There's a new you. You should not have said. You should not have thought. I'm calling you to repent, You know what, and if you do and you follow the leading of the Spirit, you actually just in that moment deprived your flesh of some of its strength. God is not content to let you or me continue to live on our own. Now look at verse 15 because he's gonna push this even to a a new height, if you will. You see, the, the true sons of God are led by the Spirit of God. It's not some of you are, some of you aren't. No, you actually are, and now here's another four, so we got to tie this to what he's just said. Four, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Here's big point number two. The spirit of God actually comes and testifies. Again, you need to think of a legal courtroom. He's, he is God the Father's witness to something really significant, and And first of all, Paul expresses it in the negative. You did not receive the Spirit. And there are many, actually, and I I actually am inclined this way. It's a translation choice when it comes down to it, and you kind of have to weigh the evidence. But I actually think we could capitalize that first Spirit. Because, I mean, it's unthinkable to, to refer to the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of slavery. So whether he's actually referring to the third person of the Trinity or not... What is for sure is that when you came to faith in Jesus Christ and he forgave your sins and declared you to be righteous for Christ's sake, said, as he does back in Romans 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for you now that you were in Christ, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. That's the way you lived before Jesus. You had no choice but to sin. Your soul, your mind, your body were dominated by darkness And the the Spirit of God didn't come in to return you to, to a different quadrant of slavery, if you will. So Paul is saying, we are no longer slaves. What are we? Well, look at what he says next. You have received the spirit of adoption. That is, you are a true son of God. Now, adoption, as I alluded to just a few moments ago, is a legal proceeding that creates a relationship between parents and a child who are not related in any other way. I know we're not in Ephesians, but you think of what Paul writes there to to the, the saints at the church at Ephesus you were once children of wrath. Oh, created by God, certainly, but you were so far away from him in your sin and rebellion that you had no hope of being rescued, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, acted, didn't he? Brought us to life. That's where Paul goes on to write, it is by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. It's not of works lest any man should boast for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are true sons, you have received the spirit of adoption. There's a a legal proceeding that has taken place in the courtroom of heaven and that's exactly what Paul will, will write more about. Now, in that particular setting, in the Roman world of the first century, an adopted son was a son deliberately chosen by his adoptive father. And sorry, ladies, there were big-time sins and misunderstandings regarding uh, the men and the women. And part of the reason Paul uses sons in several places, and I think this is one of them, even though he's going to come to the word children here in a moment, is because daughters didn't have the same legal rights as sons. It's not right, all right? I'm just admitting it. And, and can I just insert this? This is one of the things that bugs me about all this nonsense that, oh, the Bible's so patriarchal and it's down on women. It, people who say that don't understand the Bible, first of all. They also don't understand the historical context. So the real problem with that is with Rome or Greece, it's not actually with the New Testament. But Paul is using some terminology that many at Rome would have said, oh, we, we get this. And the adoptive father, in order to perpetuate his name and inherit and, and have an inheritor for his estate, would, would go through this process of legally adopting a son. And that seems to be what, what Paul has in mind here. And again, just as in a Roman court of law or heaven's court of law, when the legal declaration is made, it's a done deal. And Paul is saying, "You, you are truly sons of God. You're not slaves being dragged back into some fearful existence. You are true sons. And then look at this. We also have a true father. It's not just the status as sons. Like, like there's a dad somewhere out there that, yeah, I, I know I'm a, I'm a son but I don't know him. He's never around. No, look at, look at what Paul writes next. By whom we cry. So the spirit of adoption by whom we cry or, or exclaim or call aloud. We we cry, Abba, Father. Someone say, is it not presumptuous to call God Abba? Many of Paul's Jewish friends would have felt that way. There was a time where he would have felt that way because the the Jews would not address God in this familiar way, as a number of authors note, historians. And and when they prayed to him as Father, this is interesting, uh, one um, historian notes that when they prayed to him as father they always added something like in heaven to avoid any impression of undue presumption. We would never just use that term father if we were good Jewish people living in the first century. But you know the Lord himself used this term didn't he? Multiple times in the gospels. There's probably no more significant moment though than in his agony praying before he is betrayed in the garden and he he cries out to his God and our God, but he says what? Abba, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. And you know, the terminology uh, that you find there in the gospel, and even here in Romans, is not actually uh, best captured by, by the kind of delivery, vocal delivery that I just used but it's a cry that rises from the depths of the soul and is vocalized with the same kind of intensity. It probably was something more like this, Abba, Father! Because there are those moments in our lives where we experience those forces of, of evil or we're overwhelmed or we're discouraged or we're fearful and it generates powerful emotions, powerful desires from within and to just simply cry, cry in a polite manner, a soft tone even doesn't quite do it justice, and so it may not be vocalized as I just did it, but the cry is certainly there in the soul. And Christ's cry in Gethsemane was the cry of awe, Even a kind of fear, if you will, because it was not the cross that he shirked from, it was that the cup of God's wrath that had been filled from ages past, brimming with a holy justice, was about to be served to him, and he was called by God to be made sin for us. Here's the sinless one, the one who's never sinned in thought or word or deed, about to take upon himself the sins of the world, to be made sin for us, as Paul says to the Corinthians, in order that we might be made the righteousness of God. And there's such an aversion to sin, such an aversion to the wrath of God, such an aversion to being separated from his Father, with whom he had enjoyed perfect fellowship for all eternity, that the cry rises from his soul, Abba! And what a powerful truth this is for us that Paul says you are true sons who are legally adopted, full rights uh, of, of God the Father given to you and it is by the spirit of adoption that you too may cry, Abba. You know, Thursday, uh, my daughter Kate, who's here this morning, uh, messaged and said uh, the car is acting funny and that's like, ugh, I, I mean, I'm just going to tell you, like, I get those messages. When my children call out of the blue, my first thought is, uh, or first question is, has there been a wreck? <laughs> um, and, and are you at fault or not? I mean, I go through this little list. And there's a reason that my mind goes that direction these days. <laughs> but she messages, cars acting funny. So I called her right back, because I'm like, Oh, boy. What, what could this be? And she describes it to me and says, well, I'm actually headed that way. And I said, well, great. We'll take a look at it. And um, another family member is giving me one of those great little diagnostic tools that you you know, you know slip onto that uh, little connector. It's what AutoZone or any other shop will read, but this does it on my own. And so I pull up my app. We run the diagnostic. You know, It's like, it's no big deal. It's a little inexpensive part. Um, ordered it, changed it. You know, car is up and running. But when she, when she messaged me and then, and then I called her back. I didn't say to her, you know, why, why are you messaging me? I mean, I'm not a professionally trained mechanic. There are people in this valley who are more expert than I, and you know, you are an independent person now. Can you just deal with it? And yeah, you laugh because that's absurd. And some of you are a little nervous, like, would, would he actually say something like that to his children? Maybe. It's the instinct of a daughter to call a father and it's the instinct of a father to respond to the call of a daughter some of you struggle with this because you know in your head that god is your father but for various reasons there's there's like this great barrier fixed where you feel like you ought to solve your own problems before you call to him and so then you just give a report Which, that'd be a fine thing, too. You know, like, hey, Dad, the car wasn't running well, but I went to, and it's good, and, yeah. But you know what? This father is not asking you to solve your own problems and then call with a report. He loves, he loves to hear his children cry from the depths of their soul. Abba, Abba, I am desperate for you. To hear my cry. Abba, we are in a desperate financial strait, and you are the Abba who provides. So show us. Abba, this sin has battered me for decades. I'm begging you to grow my heart, my love for you, to sanctify me. Just show me some progress. Abba, my children are not walking with you in faith. I'm so broken by this. I I don't know what else to do. I don't know what to say to them now. I I don't even know how to pray for you right now. Abba! Abba, I have family or friends, or I have have co-workers who are so far away from you, religious in a manner, but they don't really know the saving, rescuing, liberating power of Jesus Christ. I've, I've shared the gospel with them. I've told them my story of faith. Nothing seems to move them. Abba! What is your Abba cry today? This is the greatest, best, loving, most compassionate Father in the universe and even those of you who've been blessed with a good earthly father you praise God that they've been a a good reflection but even then a dim reflection of the goodness of this father he loves you so much that he has sent the spirit first of all to testify as a witness in a court of law saying yes it is so you are a son of God a true child And then the indwelling spirit is actually the one who, in those moments of desperation, whether it be desperation over your sin, over the needs of your household, or another friend or family member, where that cry rises from your soul, that's evidence that the spirit dwells within. You see, it is the instinct of children to cry out to their fathers. And the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit, look at verse 16, that we are children of God. Now in the last couple of minutes, look at this. And we'll push the pause button again and we'll resume it several weeks out. Look at verse 17. You see, we're not only true sons with a true father, but we possess a great inheritance. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. An heir is one who enjoys all the privileges and even a guaranteed position in regard to the family. And typically we think of heirs as the recipients of an estate after uh, a a benefactor or parent or relative dies and wills them the assets that remain behind them. But there's so much more to that. When the New Testament speaks of believers inheriting something, it says we inherit eternal life. We inherit salvation. We inherit the kingdom of God. We inherit the promises of God. We inherit the blessing of God. Among the last words spoken by Christ, he promised, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you and if I go I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am you also may be we're not talking about settling the estate of a dead father or a dead God we are talking about being sharers of all the wealth and riches and glory of God himself and his one of a kind son Jesus it's all there and as the the scriptures were read earlier from first Peter one verses three through five that inheritance is described as imperishable undefiled and unfading kept in in heaven for you and lest we think what if I don't make it to heaven he goes on in verse five to say you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time so the inheritance is preserved and God Almighty works to preserve his children so that they will receive the full inheritance and reward now here's a little preview What lies ahead, and you are welcome, encouraged to read beyond verse 17, but if you look at verse 18, there's just a little hint, if you will, a little crack of the door for you to gaze into the room of what lies ahead. Paul says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You think that's tied to your inheritance? You are right if you think that. Oh, there's so much more that God has prepared and reserved for his children that we can possibly fathom right now. Now that begins to put perspective on this life. And as David wrote in Psalm 16, verse 6, I have a beautiful inheritance. That's a great king who enjoyed great riches and great recognition and success. He's a warrior. I mean, he's a poet. He's, he's, he's the renaissance man, even before the renaissance came. Um, how about that? But the thing he had set his heart on, the thing that he treasured most, was the inheritance that he had with God. And there's good stuff in heaven, but the real, the, the, the center of the inheritance is you get God himself. That's what makes the words of Jesus so special. In my father's house, in Abba's house, there are many rooms. I go to prepare a place for you. I know some of you grew up hearing, because there's another older English translation, my father's house are many mansions. Mm, and we used to talk about, I wonder how big my mansion will be. That misses the point. Just start with the beginning of that phrase. All English translations, in my father's house. How many houses? One. Many rooms. See, the father wants his family together. And he will have us together. And you will be perfectly at home. And you will find your room and they'll run out in the hall. And Who's next door to me? Who's on the floor below me? Who's on the floor above? And like little kids we will run around maybe for a while saying, can you believe we're here? We're here in Abba's house. Abba, it's perfect. And there'll be a different Abba cry on that day as the Father welcomes us home. Do you know him? Is he your Abba, he can be by faith. It's as simple as that. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Some of you are trying to be a child of God by your works. Can I remind you once again? The Apostle Paul writes earlier in the same book we're studying, by works of the law, nobody is justified in God's sight. So you can't earn it, but you can receive it. That as you put your trust in his work, his work through Jesus, his work through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Have you ever done that before? And if not, would you do it right now? Some of you say, I've turned from my sin. Not perfectly, but the best I know how. And I am putting my faith in God, but I really struggle to see God as my father. Oh, then there's another step of faith for you today. And you might need, even need to say, Lord, Please forgive me for assigning to you the imperfections and failings and even sin of an earthly father. I've imposed that on you which dishonors you and makes you to be less than you really are but I I look at your word as it's clearly given to us today and I believe it and I thank you that you are a father of a very different kind and even in praying would you go further and say Abba would you reveal yourself to me as you are and not simply as I imagine or even want you to be? Even that is an Abba cry. I want to go all the way back to what we looked at earlier in the text and ask, are you actively putting to death the deeds of the body? Some of you want the eternal fire insurance, as we say sometimes. You want to make sure that your destiny is secure, but you're still trying to live this life as you want. And God's not really central in your thoughts. Your mind is actually set on the things of the flesh. And you need to repent of that. And you need to consecrate yourself today to saying, Abba, you've sent your spirit to dwell in my heart. And by faith today, I commit myself to putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Would you just submit yourself right now? Now, God in heaven. We thank you for your word, this eternal, unchangeable, living word, and pray that you would seal to our hearts every touch of the spirit, every word of exhortation, of conviction, of consolation. Just let your work and your work alone remain. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.